Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In the fall of 2010, a single kinder travels to the Twin Cities of Minnesota to answer the call of an elder of his clan. Join us as Marco Giovanni is pulled by family loyalty into a strange territory in which he is forced to strengthen his family's influence, yet at the same time avoid destroying himself with his own dark desires. Hello, and welcome to Twin Cities by Night Eidolon. Twin Cities by Night Eidolon is a Vampire the Masquerade duet story with Adam playing Marco Giovanni and Chris as the storyteller. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, where you can find up-to-date news and a link to our Discord. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at Twin Cities by Night. We hope you enjoy. So where we left off, you were standing, looking in this mirror in this room that is secluded and almost like a cellar in Rita Giovanni's haven. The mirror is about, it's oval shaped where it is oval going up and down and at its widest, it's in the middle, it's about like three feet. So you can see a good portion of yourself looking in there around this mirror is this black frame that follows the oval pattern but it almost has these waves that go along it of images and shapes and as you see this dark black wood you'll see it looks almost like faces that are stretched out that are agonized that kind of go along it but it's not in a kind of corny over the top halloween prop kind of way it's very subtle it's almost like someone took a fine like razor and kind of etched that into the wood there. And as you're looking at yourself, making sure that your appearance is all to your liking, you see over your left shoulder, the face of your mother. Now this face, when you see it, it is rather distinct and clear, which is something that you're not used to seeing. It shows the pallor of life in her face. It, it's, it's very discombobulated in a way because it kind of makes you feel almost a little dizzy in the fact that that you're not used to seeing such a clear image when it comes to what you may believe is a spirito that's how you say it right spirito and there's a moment where you're caught off guard by that so let me go ahead and have you make a roll i would like you to make a courage roll please difficulty four Four successes. So you are shocked, but you stand there for a second staring in this mirror. And there's a moment while you're focusing and you're really tapping into that inner courage that you've had because you have dealt with the other side and you have built a tolerance, a resistance almost to being that natural inclination to be shocked and scared and to flee, which you still feel, you know, but you're able to control it. And there's a moment when you're, you are finally are able to resolve that inner struggle and you hear Rita's voice break through your inner fight that you're having. And she says, are you ready to go now, Marco? Marco is frozen in silence for a moment. Does the image of his mother stay? When you are sitting there for a moment and you look back and you focus in, like, it's not like you even look away. You just hear her voice and your inner, your inner focus is shifted to processing what Rita said. And then when you find yourself focused back at the mirror, you see that it's gone. It was off-putting to see his mother in this way. He's not used to seeing that particular spirito in an uncontrolled way. He calls her when he needs her, and that's just something he's not 
really used to seeing with that particular spirito. And it's very, that's the, the most important connection that he has to the Sudario and to that, that world, you know, and he just, it's very shocking to him, but he's trying to bottle that all up. And when you're trying to fight those urges, you see in the mirror, you can look in the mirror and you see that Rita is standing about 15 feet behind you. And you see now she kind of has this white carnigan sweater, like button up sweater that is over the top of like the blue dress, you know, so it kind of fits her form, but provides a little protection from the elements, even though you assume that a creature of her age or what you imagine to be her age is not bothered by a brisk fall wind, you know, that she has to put the facade up like it does. And so she looks at you for a moment and then she goes, we must be going. And she turns around and walks up the stairs, assuming that you follow. I just follow her trying to look as unfazed as I possibly can. She goes up these steps and you see the cement steps that you went up before and you see the cellar-like sidings and again, that moisture that kind of is collecting there as she gets up to the top of the door and opens it. You see the light coming from the room where the door is in and you see it like you see her silhouette and then she steps through the door and then you come up. When you come up, you see... Jamie is sitting on one of the couches in the room and she stands up not to address you right away, but stands up and gives you your respectable distance, wait for you to speak to her as she holds both her binder and her planner, leather planner in both of her hands. She almost holds it like with her arms straight down and crossed in front of her stomach in a way. And she's staring at you and you could tell she's trying to size up the situation. And Rita turns and looks at you and she's like, you will ride with me. My driver will take us. Your, and she looks at Jamie and she goes, your assistant can follow in your car. Once we are done speaking with the prince and I present you, you are free to go on your own. I nod to Jamie, giving her the go ahead to listen to what Rita's saying. And then I just begin to follow Rita. You guys walk through the hallway of this home and you walk out to that front foyer and step out the door. And you are again in front of this house that I described before. And you, you see the fall, brisk fall moon comes through the night and you see it illuminates the yard that is in front and you see there is this gray cadillac suv that is sitting there and there's a driver already has a car started and warmed up and you see as rita walks forward this driver gets out of the vehicle and he's wearing a suit but he's not in a cliche kind of like bodyguard suit he's wearing like this navy blue suit that has a gray shirt underneath and a blue tie and he just kind of gets up gets out of the vehicle and opens the driver's side rear door and you see Rita motions for you to go in ahead of her. I just get up and I I go to where she's motioning for me to go. And then you see she goes in and follows you in and sits behind the driver. And then he closes the door and he gets in the front and he starts driving off. You can hear the gravel crunching under the wheels as the engine purrs as he leaves this estate and goes out of the gates onto the road. And you can even hear it go from like gravel to the blacktop as it like the car adjusts and suspension flows along with how the driver decides to steer the vehicle. When you're in the vehicle, you see outside the window trees. You see that there's thick, lush forest that's outside of this neighborhood that separates it from the rest of the city. And as they get onto a, he gets onto a country highway that is leads from this suburban the suburb area onto the rest of the city, Rita looks at you. And you can't really make out too much of her because 
it's not illuminated in the back there. Obviously, you see that there's like a couple street lamps that may shoot through the darkness or it may reflect off her skin or you see even the moonlight, but you can still see the silhouette of her. And she says, we, the, we are going to go speak to the prince, as I said before. I want to prepare you for what you may experience. The prince's name is Philip, Philip Brentwood. He originally started Brentwood Industries, which... And she stops for a moment. And she's like, looks at you. And she's like, which I've been told that you had some, some dealings with in the eighties. I did. I'm familiar. Yes. I was aware of all that while it was happening. Matter of fact, it was me who directed that to start happening. Not just you being involved, but with Silvano and others of the family helping out. It was a coordinated effort. And as I mentioned before, it was to prevent a hostile takeover. But my point of bringing this up right now is Philip is very happy with our family. We have built this relationship with them. We have helped them out of, out of a other couple messes. One, you're probably gonna be tasked with finding out, but it would be good for you to have a boon from those that control the city. About a year ago, it turned out that the prince found out that his biological mother and sister, who he had ghouled, had decided to take measures to go against his authority. He asked our assistance and us, meaning the family and companies that we control, to absorb this company that his two ghouls owned. Now, that led off a string of events, which I'm sure you'll cover your own time. But what he may ask of us is he now has, she stops for a moment, looks out the window and looks back at you, the two corpses of those he had given the proxy to. He's going to want to know whatever information can be gleaned from them. He recently just took possession of those two bodies. I have faith that you can take care of that. I have faith in your skills. But right now, times are turbulent in the city. You may not see it with your interactions that you will have, but there are those in the city right now who are hiding. Those two bodies, it turned out that one of his members of his clan had gained possession of them and was holding on to them. Once it was brought to the prince's attention from my understanding that a neonate of his own clan had them, that neonate was taken care of, not to be heard from again. You and I can only assume what happened to him, but there's ne- but nothing officially said of his fate. There were those who worked with that neonate who were part of a quartery. Most of the members right now are on the run along with a couple of others who have had a blood hunt called on them. One met her final death and Roman is trying to get they're trying to frame Roman, someone is, as being responsible. I feel, as I said before, it is to try to break the alliance that you, or excuse me, that we and the prince have. So here's what I'm going to ask of you, Marco. One is you do this favor for the prince. Two is you go out there in the shark-infested waters that is this Camarilla city, and you strengthen our position by whatever means you feel necessary. And you have to understand the reason I'm asking you this is because I am preoccupied right now with things of a much, much more important nature. I cannot focus on these things like I once was able to, and I cannot trust those that worked underneath me to have the skills or the patience that will be required to strengthen our position. That is why Roman has not been given the kiss, has not been brought over. Do you understand? I understand, Rita. You don't need to worry. I'll meet with the prince, I'll play the game, and you don't need to worry about Roman. Nobody's going to fucking touch him. All right? He's safe. I'll be looking after him from now on. Good. One thing I would suggest, if you want to start making your way into the city and into the machinations, 
is you reach out to Katrina Carrington. She's the Toreador Primogen. It was her clan member who someone is trying to frame or some people are trying to frame Roman of having killed. Build the relationships with that clan. Reach out to her and do what must it must take to do that. Where can I find Roman? I think it's important that me and him meet. Introductions are made. I've had my people give your assistant Roman's number. Also, you can find Katrina Carrington, the Toreador Primogen, most likely at the club, The Underground, which she owns. Or you can find your own means to find her, but that's usually where she's at. Do you have any other questions? None. I won't disappoint you, Rita. Of you can course. trust me. And she just nods and she looks out the door. Give me a perception and alertness roll, or excuse me, perception and empathy roll, please. Difficulty eight. So if I don't have any empathy, I just don't add dice for that, right? Yeah. Can I still just roll my straight perception? Yeah, you can. Excellent. No successes. All right. So the rest of the drive goes by in silence. As you find yourself soon on the highway that leads into the Twin Cities, and you find yourself getting off an exit that leads into the downtown area. As you get off this exit, you see the downtown skyline. You see skyscrapers and buildings whose lights are on, and they cut through this clear fall night, almost like beacons. And you feel it kind of reminds you a little bit probably of Boston. It's a stark contrast of this cellar that you were in, in the middle of this suburb area that was enclosed by a forest with a lake. And now you find yourself in a jungle of concrete. And you can feel the electricity that is almost in the air as the vehicle slowly starts hitting traffic lights. And you see people are walking along the street hand in hand. You see there's people who are sitting outside on cafes that may are almost like having drinks of coffee or some beverage to kind of like keep them a little warm as the winter starts to peek through. You see people that are at bars that are kind of standing outside smoking cigarettes in the smoking area, you know, where there's like little waist high gate, cast iron gate that's around as they look at vehicles that are driving by. And you kind of notice that Rita just seems to look at the life that surrounds you all, looks at the different cars, almost as if she's amazed by this technology sometimes that she finds herself caught in this, this, this current of modern day invention which to you, you are used to, but to this person, you don't even know her history, but you can only assume probably, I would guess that this is something that she didn't experience at one point in her life. Eventually the vehicle starts getting into what you saw on that skyline where you start seeing these buildings as tall skyscrapers that surround you, almost like trees, concrete trees that have grown out of the very essence of the city, of the very streets. And eventually you see the vehicle makes a right and it goes down this little street and you see there's a parking garage there. And you can see like a list of businesses that say are validate the parking and you see one of the businesses are Brentwood Industries. And as you, right before the driver pulls into this parking garage, you see out the front window, you see this huge building and you can kind of see where it says Brentwood Industries kind of like on a door, on this huge like glass pane door, you know, that kind of like takes the whole width of the building and you assume that's where you guys are gonna be heading. As you go into the parking garage, the vehicle goes in the parking garage. It drives up, spirals up about five times until you get to this actually opened air parking where it's like almost on the top level of this parking garage. And you see this SUV eventually pulls into a parking spot and the driver keeps the car running and he just looks through the rear view window and he's like, here we are, ma'am. And you see Rita just nod and she opens the door and gets out the door. And she is waiting for you to get out too. I get out as casually as possible. 
I take a second to look at myself, make sure that my suit looks okay. I don't want to appear sloppy in front of Philip, and I certainly don't want to disappoint Rita by not making a good presentation. What's going on in your head, too, with everything that she told you, like on the drive there? He's scared, but at the same time, he's assuring himself, I can handle this. He knows that he doesn't really have a choice. If, if he doesn't handle it, he'll be completely fucked. But also the fact that Rita says she has bigger plans. Maybe if he can prove himself, he can insert himself into these bigger plans. Maybe he can in, insert himself into something grander. So what does he mean? What, what do you mean when you say he, he, he'll be fucked if he's not successful? What does he think will happen if he's not successful? Well, first of all, he's afraid of just straight up disappointing Rita. But at the same time, he's afraid of no longer being seen as useful. Maybe, maybe they'll just kind of edge him out. Maybe they'll just end him. He's not really, he's not really sure, but he plays out different situations in his head. He knows what he would like to do to the members of the family that he despises. So he knows that if you burn enough bridges, in this case, even by fucking up, even by not coming through on your end of the agreement, which he's just promised himself. And that's another thing too, is he wants to be very upfront about, I can get this done. I promise you, nothing is going to happen to Roman. So now that he said that he needs to, he needs to make right. He needs to make that true. And he's just, he's just afraid of basically what could happen if he doesn't, he plays out different scenarios. Is he anxious? Like, does this make him anxious? A little bit. Yeah, absolutely. He just has, yeah, I would say anxiety is probably the best word for it. He tries to keep it definitely below the surface, tries to not let any of that out. Maybe Jamie has heard him express his true feelings once or twice before, but he usually doesn't let that side of him out. He doesn't vocalize that because that would give validity to it. And who knows what could happen if he starts acting worried, you know? Does this anxiety that you're feeling right now, two questions, is it something that you have felt your whole time being a kindred or is this something that just happened is like happening now? And two, does it awaken the beast a little bit in him, like feeling that anxious? I would say it's something that he always experiences, not necessarily often at home because that's where he feels most comfortable, but certainly this condition from time to time things get away from you, feelings get away from you. And it's basically like you said as well, he does feel like he's choking down the beast a little bit when those sorts of feelings rise up. So he can't give validity to them because he doesn't want to let that out as well. He doesn't want to psych himself up too much or anything like that. Does it ever remind you of a time that you lost control of the beast? I'm not really sure. I hadn't I hadn't thought of uh, any specific things, but I can imagine that Certain times, maybe feeding has gone wrong or something, especially the condition that he has where he inflicts a tremendous amount of pain on somebody when he engages in that. I'm sure there's been times where he's just resorted to like back alley mugging type of situations to feed. And, you know, if there's struggle and I can imagine there would be, things can get out of control, things get out of hand, you let things, you know, a situation gets away from you. and you know, he probably has to clean up a mess or two. It's definitely happened before. And I would just, uh, imagine too, with like the the pain, the, like the curse that your clan has and the pain that 
feeling brings up brings out in people that hearing that pain and that agony probably even awakens the, the, that beast more you know where normal canines and kindred have to deal with the fact that you know yes it provides ecstasy which usually makes your victim kind of like dormant you know you may you could very well frenzy because of the, the vitae but not only on top of that vitae you guys have like this animal fucking fleeing and, and, and cry a pain that it brings out which probably really feeds into the beast it makes it harder to control while you're feeding you know, and which is, I'm sure, our times that that has uh, exponentially made it to where feeding is, of course, way more difficult, but you've lost yourself to the beast. And, you know, that is unfortunately the curse that every kindred and canine have at the moment. And it's hearing that sort of distress and stuff when he feeds. So like when he feeds and he hears somebody scream and torment, that's horrible for him. But at the same time, he engages in these sorts of like ritual acts and to him peeking into the Sudario is like this just nightmare trip that he just engages in at will. So to him, it's not, it's not like always a thing that's going to get that sort of a rise out of him, but it is of course possible. It's 100% possible. Yeah. 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 It's happened with the right stresses and the right, who knows, you know what I mean? Right situation. There's yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. So as you guys are get out of this SUV, the driver stays in there and you see that you're on top of this parking garage. And, and if you look around, you can see that there's buildings kind of like surrounding you and you're able to see Brentwood Industries. It's this tall building. You try to count the stories, but you really are, are really not able to count how many stories are up there. It's it's made of gray concrete, but you see like the Brentwood Industries is in this like silver magnum color and it's outlined in white and it's kind of like on top of the building, but then you're able to see because you're only on the fifth floor of this parking garage. You look down and you can see like this, the, the entranceway of this building. So if you look down, you see from an angle like like the whole front bottom floor of the building seems to be all glass. I mean, of course you assume it's more than glass because it's holding up this building, but kind of like wraps around and you can see kind of like almost like inside, like you see there's lights on, but you can't, you know, you see kind of maybe a lobby and you see that there's a sidewalk that goes by it. And you see that obviously it looks like it's not open for business right now, but you see that there's not too many people who are walking along the side sidewalk right now, because this is kind of like the business section and it's about like 1030 at night right now. You see like a Twin Cities Tribune, like newspaper, Paper, you know, where you put a quarter in and open it up. You see, it like on the corner there, it's like bolted down to the sidewalk. You see, there's like a street sign that has two streets with like, and there's a street lamp that are on two sidewalk corners that are in front of the building there. And as you guys are looking at it, you hear you hear a hello, and you look, and you see Rita look, and you see that there's someone that is in a suit there. He's wearing actually kind of like a, a grayish suit. It has a white starch shirt underneath it. He has a black tie. He's wearing these black, highly shined leather loafers. The suit is is tailored. You can tell it fits his body like like it's supposed to. It almost rides the contours and, and leaves no awkward spacage under the armpits or like in the crotch area or around the knees. It looks like it's it fit just like it was born for him. You see this figure standing there. He has like short cut black hair. It has a hard part to it. It's almost kind of like faded skin, faded to the side. He has a clean shaven face. You see that he's kind of like motion his hands up, like he's indicating, like he's waving to you guys. And as he walks up, you see you see his breath coming out as he's exhaling because the the brisk fall evening. And he walks up and he keeps a respectful distance. And you notice when he gets to you two, 
he goes to speak to like Rita and you see a moment he looks at Rita and you catch this instinctual like flinching almost and he looks at you right away. So it's almost like he at first was going to he knows he's supposed to speak to her and then he something about her just freaks him the fuck out and he looks at you and he's like, if you'd follow me, I'll bring you to Mr. Brentwood. I'll give him a smile, more of a smirk, actually. And I'll just begin to follow him. And you see Rita just slowly walks behind you. She really doesn't pay no heed. You just hear the clicking of her heels on the cement as she walks behind you. And as you see your following figure, he goes to where on top of this parking garage, there's a set of double doors there. And as he goes and pushes, it has those, it's a, they're, they're painted blue and they have those like bars that you push in to open them up, you know, and you see that he pushes it in and he holds it for both of you as you guys walk through. And he's like, if you two would follow me. And he kind of just keeps walking so, like to where he's in front of you, like five feet. And you see when you look, see these double doors, you see it's a large like hallway that almost like a maintenance uh, maintenance uh, cart could drive through, like a little maintenance golf cart. And it's cement. And you see on the top, there's like these fluorescent lights that align it. And as you look down, you see about it's about 100 yards. And it looks like it turns to the left there. And as you're walking, you kind of hear the his loafers hitting the hitting the cement. And it kind of echoes throughout. And you can, again, hear Rita's heels. As he turns around the left corner and you guys follow him, you kind of see all, uh, that there's a set of elevator doors there. There's two elevator doors. And he gets into one of the elevator doors. And he motions for you. He hits the up button. And he motions for you guys to to go in before he goes in. I'll walk in the elevator first, kind of putting myself in a corner and making a comfortable spot for Rita to stand next to me. And I can probably tell that he's, of course, uncomfortable by Rita. Marco has seen what Rita looks like when she's completely naked. Her skin is almost like porcelain. And of course, other people can feel that. They don't need to see that. They can just gleam that from being close it just makes him uncomfortable and he understands that i think he you know he he picks up on that right away i mean in a way you even feel kind of uncomfortable around it you know it kind of makes you feel uncomfortable it's definitely i don't want to sound cheesy but it's it's definitely spooky she's a very enigmatic person yeah so he walks in and he turns his back to you and he, you see him pull out this badge that he has in his coat pocket like the inside of a suit pocket and he pulls it out and you see that there's this little, looks like a black square. There's normal up and down and floor buttons and all that. But you see on the bottom, there's like this black square and he just, he like kind of swipes his badge in front of it. And you see on the little black square, like a, a light goes from red to green. And then you just feel the elevator shift up and give me a perception and alertness roll, please. Difficulty six. Does my specialty of careful come into play at all? Yes. I'll let you re-roll tens. Yes. Because I assume you'd be careful in the elevator like this, yeah. Five successes. Holy cow. Okay, so <laughs> as after he swipes the badge, you see he puts the badge back in his pocket. And you notice when he puts the badge back into his pocket, his hands are shaking a little bit. They're trembling. And after the trembling, you can kind of see on the back of his neck because it's like cleanly shaven up into like the middle of his head where the, his hair fades. You can see like sweat is like starting to like drip down the back of his neck. And you kind of see like his foot is tapping, you know, like like it's is tapping in patience as he's waiting for the floor. You can see that he looks up at the little thing on top where it shows the floors that are going by. And you can definitely get the vibe. He does not want to be in here. And he's like probably riding the, the he's riding 
a wave of almost the same anxiety that you're feeling right now. How does that make you feel right now? Would you say that would make you need to roll a self-control rule right now? Seeing like this person in here, like kind of like on edge and you're feeling on edge a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Especially if he's really picking up on that. Yeah. Just this tiny space and yeah, for sure. Reed is there. And yeah, I think that would make sense. We'll do a self-control roll of difficulty four. Okay. And I'm not saying you have to now, but don't forget willpower in the scenario and everything like that. But you don't have to do it. Now. I'm just saying. Stay. Let's spend a willpower because I don't want things to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want things to like fucking tear up this dude in an elevator and be like, oh, shit. <laughs> Hi. Uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I like I don't I probably haven't met him, but I remember his business, of course. His business. Age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One success. That willpower. You're glad you did it, huh? What, or that's two, what, at, two at the willpower. Oh, okay. That's good. That's good. Then, yeah. And I want to do one of my goals here with the stories. I want to get more into the self-control rules because I felt like I really neglected those in the first two story arcs and kind of touched on them in dread a little bit. And I really want to get that aspect of vampire down. So, okay. So you feel it. Like you're just staring intently. And there's a moment that you're like staring and then you kind of look out the corner of your eyes and you see Rita's just looking at you. And you just see a smirk. Just like kind of like just, it's almost like this instinctual instinctual animal communication you two are having right now this is not rita the 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 scary elder who is speaking to you who intimidated you and this isn't marco the young vampire who's about to speak to the prince but this is this is instinctual like predator communication going on right now like you're getting joy that you are almost like a lion that's like swatting at a rabbit right now and there's a moment where you both are looking at each other and i would almost say that it's almost like a it's almost like a connection you would feel sexually with someone you know when you're immortal like that instinctual like like this electric like shock that happens between pheromones or looks muscle twitches in your face but there's a moment you two have this connection and then the door opens up and then you just see like 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 a like a stone cold anvil her face just goes back to what it was and she looks forward and she steps out and as this as you guys step out this elevator door you see the guy like immediately goes to his right to be away from you guys and what you find yourself in right now is a weird almost little lobby it's about 20 feet by 20 feet on the floor is tile but you see in the middle about 10 feet by 10 feet there's this turkish rug that has this really intricate design that's on it it's like maroons and golds and greens and it's very like very enticing it looks like hours were spent on this days weeks years were probably spent on this and you see the tile is almost this marble tan marble color looks like it would belong almost like in a southwestern area but it seems to go very well these two clashes of styles from two different regions of the world seem to to mold together very well in this lobby there are pots these these vases that are about the size of a human child and you see within there there are plants that come out of it like these green leafy plants you see along the walls the walls are painted Oddly, an eggshell white. There's nothing extravagant about the walls, but you see that there are these scenic photos of a city or a bridge, almost like taken at night, like a black and white white style photo. You're not sure what they would be, what city they would be, but you could probably assume that they'd be the Twin Cities, but different areas of the Twin Cities there. And then you see that there's this door that's opposite of the elevator. 
and it looks like a door that you would find on an apartment. And you see that the when you guys step through, the man who stepped to the right immediately to be arrival on the vases to kind of get space quickly walks forward, and you see that he knocks on the door, and you see a figure answer the door. The figure is about six foot three, six foot four. He looks like he would come from an area of the Twin Cities. And what I mean by that, he is probably like 200, 230 pounds. He's beefy, but not like in a yoked out kind of way. He has like a beer gut and he looks like he is probably like 45 years old. He is bald. His hair is bald on top, but he has like his hair cut short to the sides. It looks like it might be a blondish gray. He has like kind of thicker cheeks, but he looks like that under the beefiness a little bit is there is like muscle, like farm muscle, like someone who probably grew up on a farm lifting like heavy bales. But you see, though, that he is not dressed in that way. He has brown loafers on with tan slacks, like khaki slacks. And he has a white polo shirt that's tucked in. And he has like one of those brown ropey belts that were the fashion like in the 80s, like with that leather different leather straps are kind of wrapped together but it's a belt and it's a nice belt but it's definitely one that's not in fashion now he has a watch on that looks like it could be maybe like a rolex or something like that he has a kind of like a looks like a wedding ring almost that but it's on his pinky finger and it has like looks like you see the shininess of a couple diamonds but nothing extravagant the face looks somewhat warm but also somewhat stoic it looks like that it's a face that probably in its time laughed and when it would laugh, would have color come to his cheeks. But now what you see are hazel eyes staring at you. And the face has a twinge of paleness. And you see for a moment, he's staring at you too. And then he looks at the figure who knocked on the door. And you see the figure who knocked on the door is almost like seems relieved that he answered. And you see him look down. He's like, thank you. And then he goes, you can go. And you see the figure like steps aside, waiting for you two to look forward. And he looks up and he's like, Rita. And you hear his voice seems kind of like has bass to it. And he walks forward and he like extends his hand out. And you see, she kind of does the feminine, puts her hand forward and he takes it. And he's like, and he looks at you. He's like, Marco, I take it. Yes. Nice to meet you. And nice I put my hand out. He puts his hand out. I was like, Brian Rogers, I'm the central of the city here. And you know, from your, I'll just say that, you know, a central is a prince's assistant. It's like a second in command in a way if a prince is ever out or if something happens to the prince or, you know, something to that extent. And you see, he goes, I hope you're, I hope you find our city to be uh, to your liking. And he's like, I hope your, your travel here was safe. I assume no difficulties. Everything was excellent. Thank you. And I'm loving the city so far. This is truly an amazing building. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it was all Philip's work. And I just simply find myself working in here too. And I'm glad that you're here our relationship with Rita for, for the time that she's been here has been great. She's said nothing but good things to you. And it seems like you'd be a very welcome addition to the city. Please, if you step in, we can I can lead you to Philip here. And he like kind of like motions for you guys to walk through the door. I'm gonna actually let Rita walk in first, and then I'm going to follow in behind her. And I'm just trying to kind of read her. Basically, I'm, I'm trying to follow what she wants me to do. So if she sits down, I'll sit down, you know, like, and I'm going to be standing while she's standing. And if she's like standing and shaking his hand, like I'm going to be standing and shaking his hand and I'm just going to be following her lead. For sure. So you both walk through this door and you see while she's walking through, Brian is like, here, let me take your sweater there, Rita. And he like, she sees, she takes off that white, like Carnegie sweater, you know, like the 
off and she has that same blue dress, that sleeveless blue dress on. He like takes it, puts it over his arm. As you guys walk through the store, you see right away, you seem to be going into like a living area, like a living room type area. You see that they're right in, like if you look straight ahead on the opposite wall, which is about like, I would say about 35 feet in diameter, excuse me, across, you see that it looks like it's almost all glass and it faces the city. You can actually see like a good view of a river. You don't know what river it is, but you see that there's like this bridge that goes over the river, like this old, like iron metallic bridge, but it looks, you see cars that are going across it. And that, when I say old, I don't mean decrepit. It's well taken care of, but it's like that old style bridge. You saw plenty of times in the East coast, you know, different cities that you went to when you were a kid, you see that they're uh, facing towards you that closer to that wall is a large leather, brown leather couch. And you see there's a coffee table in front of that. And then across from that is a, another brown leather love seat. It's not a couch, but it's a love seat. And the back of that is closer to you guys right now. So you walk in, you look, you see the back of that love seat, coffee table, couch, and then that huge, you know, kind of window pane wall. You see when you look to the right, there's like a little kitchen area, but the kitchen area looks like it's not really used. And I don't want to sound cliche. You know what I mean? Like, like, Oh, vampires don't use, but it doesn't, you know, you look in there, you don't see like fruit is sitting out there. You don't see snacks or a coffee machine or, you know, anything like that. It, it almost looks like that the appliances that are there are just there. Fridge, oven, microwave, you know, that was just kind of built into that place. You see that there's bookshelves along the wall. The lights in the, there are very dim, dimly lit. Ne there's two end tables next to the couch that have these lamps on there that are almost look like they have, are made from like a, a blue quartz in a way, like a clear blue glass, like where you can see the, the insides a little bit. And when they turn on, you see they have a really the, the softening light, not the, not the bright fluorescent light that, that light bulbs give, but more of a softer shade. And it kind of like dimly lights the room a little bit. You hear that there's, you hear music going through, but it sounds like a relaxing, like kind of like saxophone music, like a, almost like a kind of a Kenny G, but not commercial, maybe older than that time. You see that they're at the uh, other end of the wall, at the left wall, there's like a bookshelf and there's like a little record player that's on this little table there. And you kind of figure out that's where that music is coming from. This is like this record player. And you see a figure is turning around from standing by the, the huge window. And you turn around, you see this figure. He looks to be about 5'11", maybe 180 pounds. He has gray slacks on and you see he has a black turtleneck sweater like a thick sweater but it's like comes up around his neck like the turtleneck you see he has a slender face almost almost angelic in a way that when he was embraced that he hadn't really seen the world you know there's no lines of age if you were to look at him you would assume he was probably like 21 22 when he was brought over and you see that he has short blonde hair but it has like a slight curl to it like if he was to grow his hair out it'd be like curly but now it's like cut and it's controlled he almost has like these eyes that are he has these eyes that are blue but they're like seem almost sleepy in a weird way not like he's like high or anything like that but they seem like they're, they're almost like have not been truly awakened to the horrors of the world they don't seem uber alert but you see when you come in the room he almost like has this charm that comes over him his his lips are almost they're they're slightly thick in a, in a way not in a creepy way but almost like in a like that angelic way and you hear you see him smile and you hear come from him he's like rita rita and he like comes forward and you see he like goes to give her a hug and then he turns to look at you and he sticks out his hand and he's like marco i take it yes nice to meet you 
And I put my hand out. I try to give him a very like professional. I try to give him like a business shake and I'm really doing my best to just give him the most appropriate gestures. And when he shakes your hand, I'm trying to think, give me a perception alertness roll. Difficulty six. Fucking perceptive motherfucker. (laughs) And yes, you're being careful. (laughs) Four. Damn, I love it. I love when players get roles like that because it allows more of the story to be exposed. When you shake his hand, there's a moment where you're like, okay, yes, I want to be professional. Then as soon as his skin touches yours, you feel it's cold. It's almost like stone cold. And there's a moment where you kind of like your brain starts like starts all these like connections start connecting. And you realize when you shook Brian's hand while it wasn't like uber warm and calm and or clammy, you, you could still feel almost like this facade that he was trying to put forward. And when you look at the prince, there's a moment where you connect because you see his face and you realize that his face is pale. And you especially can compare to the blackness of his turtleneck. You start maybe thinking like, is he trying to like hide that he's like Rita in a way? You see there's an intensity when he looks at you. At first, what you thought were like sleepy eyes. When you look into him, you realize that there's this otherness that's looking at you. There's almost like this feeling of like, you feel that anxiety kind of creep up the back of your neck a little bit now. It's almost ironic because not just but like a couple of minutes ago, you were getting joy off of causing someone or knowing that someone was feeling that 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 fear or that anxiety. And now you see you, you feel it a little bit creeping up the back of your neck right now. What does your character think about that? Like you said, he feels this sense of anxiety and he just knows in this moment that this is a completely different beast than Boston. One hundred percent. This is a going to be a volatile situation or not a volatile situation let me rephrase that it's just going to be an uneasy situation where he is the outsider there's other people that he can clearly see the inhumanness he can clearly see that otherness about them and it's starting to all kind of sink in the seriousness of this this what happened in the elevator was just like this boost of adrenaline that he just kind of got and he carries that with him into this room and he tries to he tries to play it cool he tries to give the best handshake and he feels that coldness and it just reminds him that he is not at home he's basically just anything could happen here anything could happen here and he's like trying to come to terms with that but in a way it's exciting to him Oh, it's exciting. Like it's something new, like an adventure kind of thing. Yeah. It's like a weird thrill, almost like the kind of thrill he was used to. Everything just feels up in the air, but for everything feels up in the air. But what's unusual is he doesn't feel uncomfortable by it. He just wants to ride it. He just wants to ride the wave. He just wants to feel adrenaline like he felt in the elevator. And he just wants to feel like he just wants to be among predators. And when, when that thought crosses your mind, you see this predator looking back at you and he motions to the couch. He's like, sit, let's talk. Chronicles of Darkness Ultimate Evil is a game set in 1987 in Bismarck, North Dakota, and deals with themes such as the satanic panic, but also childhood and the loss of innocence. I feel that's where Adam and I grew the chemistry that you probably hear now in Vampire the Masquerade Eidolon. Give it a try.